This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good afternoon and welcome to this afternoon's Historical Materialism HM Online 2020 broadcast. We hope you've been enjoying the program and I'm certain you're going to enjoy this session. Uh, This session is on social reproduction, on the scopes and limits of social reproduction theory and its analysis. And we have three of the most important thinkers on social reproduction on the panel. Sue Ferguson is Emeritus Professor from the Journalism Programme at the Wilfrid Laurier University. Her previous work and well-known work is on feminist theory and politics, exploring the development of the social reproduction framework. Uh, Many of you will know her book, Women and Work, Feminism, Labour and Social Reproduction, which was published last year. But you may also know uh, Marxism and the Oppression of Women Towards a United Theory, which was published by the Historical Materialism book series, uh, both in Brill and, of course, with Haymarket, along with that she co-authored that with Lisa Vogel. Uh, And that book, amongst amongst all the other HM books, is currently available for the period of the online program uh, with a heavy discount. So I'd advise you to go to the website and have a look at that. Uh, Hester Eisenstein is another emeritus professor of sociology, graduate centre, Queen's College, CUNY. Hester's work is again well known around gender and globalization, women and work, and the sociology of gender. And of course, she's very well known for her 2009 book, Feminism Seduced How Global Elites Use Women's Labor and Ideas to Exploit the World. And Jonathan Martineau. Jonathan is in politics and international studies at Bishop's University, Quebec, in Canada. Jonathan, unfortunately, isn't emeritus. He's still working full-time and extremely hard. Uh, He will perhaps best be known to many viewers for his incredibly important and insightful book, Time, Capitalism and Alienation, a socio-historical inquiry into the making of modern time. And again, that was published on the Historical Materialism book series. Uh, All three speakers are going to speak for something around 15, 20, and perhaps just a little bit over 20 minutes. There'll be plenty of time for questions. Please put your questions into the chat box to the right of your screen as you're watching. Uh, And I'll try and select them based on a range of different factors, such as who is asking in terms of geographical disposition around the globe uh, and what the questions are. Uh, Jonathan will start with algorithmic capitalism and social reproduction and exploration. Then Hester will talk about from patriarchy to social reproduction, some theoretical questions. And finally, Sue will talk about social reproduction theory, new challenges. Jonathan. Thank you, Paul. Hi, everyone. I'm from Montreal. Um, um, I'm happy to, to be here and to be with you. I'm also uh, very sad not to actually be in London and, and see everyone uh, in person. I'm, I'm very much hoping that we can um, do that next year at the very 
at the very latest. Um, um, my paper inquires into uh, the transformation of domestic labor and the sphere of social reproduction with the advance of new forms of capital accumulation in, in the last 15 years or so. In this paper, it's, it's new research for me, and it's inscribed in a broader research project undertook with my fantastic co-researcher, uh, Jonathan uh, Durand-Folco from St. Paul University in Ottawa. Um, and we're researching uh, what we take to be a new mode of, of capital accumulation that has taken over and, and, and subsumed more and more of the world economy in the last, last 15 years, something we call or end up calling algorithmic capitalism, but that many other authors often term surveillance capitalism or platform capitalism or digital capitalism and so on and so forth. So just to get this out of the way, we define it as an accumulation regime based on the extraction and valorization of data, uh, the exploitation of digital labor and other forms of algorithmic labor by uh, digital platforms and algorithmic capitalists, and the accelerated development of algorithms and AI in the different spheres of social life, including social reproduction and uh, domestic labor. And uh, you know, so there's a massive literature on uh, platform and digital surveillance capitalism, but but very little research has been done on the impact of this on domestic work or on social reproduction. Um, so what I mean is that the, the literature on so-called digital capitalism treats of social reproduction only very rarely, and social reproduction theory does not treat so much uh, yet of the new data economy either. So in this chapter of our project, I turn to social reproduction theory, and I try to come up with a first, you know, very basic analysis of how the imperative of algorithmic capitalism, which are basically, you know, to extract data from as much of human experience as possible. All these imperatives are then colonizing social reproduction as well and domestic work and the households and, and connecting it to the market in what I would like to suggest is an unprecedented way. So I want to examine changes in social reproduction, especially in the household and domestic work. And these changes that are then brought about by the smart home industry and algorithms and AI, such as Amazon's Alexa, for example. And, and all throughout that narrative, I want to focus or to highlight the historical fluidity of gender and racialized form of oppression in capitalism. And social reproduction theory then is extremely helpful to me because it's been extremely good at mapping the this historical fluidity of, of forms of oppression uh, we've had uh, theorizing that reflects, well, the 40s or post-war period, especially in the domestic labor debates uh, when it emerged. Uh, the main idea here is that, you know, domestic work in working class families is a site for the reproduction of labor power uh, daily and generationally, as, as Vogel argued, for example. And here, what's important in my view is the strict separation between production and reproduction, a separation that's both spatial as well as temporal. 
And ultimately, then a gender coding of production as male, reproduction as female. So domestic labor in that post-war for this context uh, and the sphere of the household is necessary for capital accumulation. And social reproduction theory has been very good at, at, at debating this issue. But uh, uh, even though it's necessary for capital accumulation, it's not marketized. It's not commodified. It's not waged or tied to the market in that way. Uh, then we have a second period, the neoliberal or post for this context that installs many tendencies that profoundly affect domestic work in the global north, at least. Uh, and we could point to the massive entry of women on the labor market itself, the, the fragmentation of household wages, the cultural decline as well of the figure or ideal of the housewife and then the increasing precarity found in the labor market, household debt, and so on and so forth. But one net result of these historical trends is a marketization, a commercialization of reproductive domestic labor. And we see the creation of a transnational space where the social relations of a new international division of domestic labor are deployed. And, and Sue had, had a piece on this in Socialist Register a few years back. Um, so we have the formation of a working class of precarious migrant women and a restructuration of social reproduction within um, vast global networks of relations between capital, labor, gender, racialized processes. Um, and from the post-war working class housewife, if you will, then the lead conceptual figure of social reproduction becomes that migrant, racialized, uh, women domestic worker figure. So first important tendency here in that neoliberal context, this means that domestic work is marketized, it's commodified in the sense that an actual labor market is formed, tying up household work in mostly upper-class households and working-class women. Uh, in contrast to the stricter separation between wage labor and domestic labor in the Fordist period. And as well in social reproduction theory, we see important developments progressively on the conceptualization of immaterial or care work in relation to the domestic sphere. So how domestic work produces more than labor power, it also produces effects as well, like satisfaction, excitement, community, shared subjectivities, communication, logistics, etc. And then in the work of someone like Shiloh Whitney, for example, we also learn how domestic labor in its effective modes can also be byproductive. So it produces at the same time effects for others. But it also includes a labor of metabolism of undesirable effects in the household. So this relates to the notion that there's a circulation of affects in the household and that domestic labor metabolizes negative effects. So impatience, frustration, uh, bad moods, uh, conflictuality into positive ones. So dialogue, good mood, free time, rest. By doing things like cooking, not just a dish, but someone's favorite dish, right, etc. So, which you know is already present, of course, in the figure of the housewife, but still under theorized and is now incarnated in the figure of the migrant domestic worker who's always, you know, treating children with love, always smiling and discreet, uh, creating effective value by placing objects with taste and care, absorbing everyone's stress and bad moods and translating it into cleanness, conviviality. So a kind of, of 
disinfectant of the household, both literally and, and figuratively speaking. So in this post for this neoliberal context, we see already the connection between domestic labor and the market, which I'm interested in. Uh, but here what I want to focus for the rest of this presentation is really where my research is heading and so a first and very preliminary attempt at mapping what happens now to that sphere with the advent of data, the data economy or algorithmic capitalism, uh, the Internet of Things and the household, uh, smart homes, smart appliances. And ultimately, I want to say a few words about AI personal assistance developed by algorithmic capitalists. And so far, I see three tendencies happening, which stand out to me. The first one, and I'm going to go over these three. The first one is an exacerbation of that connection between the domestic sphere and the market. Uh, so an increasing commodification of household work, uh, mainly through platforms. Uh, the second tendency, which I want to say a few words about, is um, domestic sphere and social reproduction becoming a premium space-time for extraction of algorithmic capitalism's favorite zero-cost asset, which is data. And the third one, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if we are seeing a certain reconfiguration of effective labor in the household mediated by technology now. Um, so on the first point, so the, the, the commodification, the further commodification of the domestic sphere. So the post for this context creates this global and precarious labor market for domestic work. And what we see now with algorithmic or platform capitalism is an increasing absorption, or dare I say it in front of a Marxist crowd, a subsumption of that market under the logic of platforms that coordinates uh, supply and demand of domestic work chores through algorithms. So think here of the rise of the so-called gig economy, right? So that is now mediated by platforms which uh, datafy and algorithmically connect the provision of these services. So you have, uh, on the one hand, uh, platforms that reorganize and expand domestic labor markets. And on the other end, increasingly precarious youth, uh, women, students, working class people that sell their labor in fragmented doses, doing chauffeur, uh, delivery, housemaid, babysitting, tutor, cook, sex work, and the men work on these platforms. So you probably have heard of some of these platforms, and there's no need here to go into an exhaustive review of them. But think of Care.com, where platform users can supply or demand all sorts of care work. Uh, TaskRabbit, maybe you've heard of Handy. Uh, they do the same for household repair chores, for example. Uh, Uber for transportation. We all know Uber. So we have house maintenance platforms, walking the dog platforms, walking the kids to school platforms, food delivery even home cooking services, uh, sex work as well is platformized even more uh, today. So you have a, a, a platformization, um, sorry for that, that harsh word, of labor um, uh, here that also encompasses a great many tasks uh, uh, associated with domestic labor and social reproduction. So this exacerbates the commodification of these tasks, of course, and it creates precarious and very complex labor markets where extremely low wages, the absence of protection or job stability, 
uh, the very denial by giant platforms that users are actually workers. Um, so, so now tensions and, and sites of struggle between capital and labor uh, um, more and more includes domestic and care workers here in this, this tension at the point of production, if you will. Uh, on my second point, so the domestic sphere becoming a, a premium uh, space-time of extraction, I think it's here that we really see how algorithmic capital reconfigures the domestic sphere. It is by outright colonizing it through the smart home industry and the Internet of Things. So I'm referring first here to household items with uh, equipped with sensors, mics, others, uh, data collecting devices, and also that can be programmed in advance to perform certain tasks in the house automatically. And I'm referring as well to all gaming entertainment devices, which act as data collectors as well. So these objects and appliances collect data on the task they are supposed to accomplish, but also about online presence, ambient data from the house or movement, voice, conversations, but also things like food preference, um, health data about the people in the house, and so on and so forth. So uh, there are a few examples I, I, I could bring up for him. some of my favorite household, uh, smart household items, and I mean favorite in an ironic way. Uh, the smart fridge, the Samsung Family Hub touchscreen, for example, which maybe you know about, which monitors not just the freshness of your food, but the actual supply of food in your fridge and can order food directly from the food store without you even having to care about it. But the fridge comes with a screen in front. Uh, with data collection and sensors on it. You can actually stream Netflix on your fridge door if you want. You can connect it to your doorbell and see who's at the door on, on your fridge screen. That, that's quite interesting. Uh, the smart vacuum cleaner, which I'm sure you've heard about or maybe own one, that maps your house. And that's good for the vacuum cleaner not to fall off the stairs, but that also gives data about the inside of your house. And this data is uh, then sold to Google and Amazon. Uh, my favorite, though, my ultimate favorite is the smart bed. Sleep number 360 with Sleep IQ technology. And this is a bed that is equipped with sensors that calculate your, your heart rate, your vital signs, um, uh, the number of times you get up during the night, uh, the time you go to bed, the time you get up. Uh, that also records the ambient noises in the bedroom, which I find extremely creepy. Um, and at the end of the night, so when you wake up in the morning, it scores your night. So did you sleep well or not, according to all these variables? But what you can see here is that this is data extraction paradise. So this data on very intimate uh, things uh, is actually transferred to the bed makers. And obviously, these people are selling this data to insurance companies and so on and so forth afterwards. So uh, kids toys uh, uh, records kids voices as well. Right. So there's been some scandal in Europe with these type of things. So so these objects perform an economic function long after their actual purchase has occurred which is extracting data. And all of these objects have our data then migrate to algorithmic capitalists who use it to create productive products, algorithms, AI technology, and extract actual economic value out of this zero-cost asset. Um, so here, algorithmic capital has, has colonized the domestic sphere to an unprecedented extent. 
And this extracted data then serves to uh, train algorithms and AI that come back to deny loans or health insurance to working class people that automate inequalities when public services are dispensed by biased algorithms. Um, facial recognition or crime prevention AI is used by the police to harass people in poor neighborhoods and so on and so forth. So, um, However, the, the, the culminating point of this colonization of the domestic sphere by platforms and smart home technologies is their systematization into a network under the control of one piece of AI technology marketed as a personal or home assistance technology. So I'm talking about Amazon's Alexa, uh, Google Assistance, Google Home, uh, the Chinese have Xiaowei from Tencent, or think of Siri from Apple, from Apple, for example. So in their home or domestic assistant variants, these systems connect all the different devices and appliances of your house and become a kind of headquarters of domestic labor. And they're also equipped with speech technology. And anyway, they're very popular in, in upper class households in the global north where data is extracted and then used to design algorithmic tools of oppression for poor and working class populations. So their central function is automation of domestic work. So cleaning, vacuuming, food preparation, key tutoring, uh, but also to create a seamless flow between the household and the supply of consumption items, all the while acting as the ultimate data extraction Trojan horses in the house. So let me say a thing or two about Alexa, which is Amazon's version of these things. And it's the number one product in that category. And very little critical literature exists on this. So if you know of any, please write it in the chat. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to find some critical pieces on this. There's a helpful piece by Schiller and McMahon, though. And they say Alexa exacerbates the commodification of the domestic sphere in at least three ways. You see, first, uh, data tastes, preferences, effects, personal stories generated by interacting with Alexa are appropriated by Amazon, which uses it to sell its products to you better. So personalize Alexa even more and develop algorithms and AI even more. So it's more efficient at doing this. Secondly, they mentioned that Alexa actually automatizes the purchase of Amazon products, right? So pre-programming supply and, you know, toilet paper or what have you, right? So Alexa will buy stuff for you just before you run out of it. So buying on Amazon here is effectively an automated action. Um, and thirdly, they point to uh, the fact that Alexa makes it easier to use other devices and appliances which extract data. So Alexa, start the vacuum cleaner. Alexa, stream my favorite series and so on and so forth. So that's for the, the, the first two points, the exacerbation uh, uh, of the commodification of the domestic sphere and the extraction of data. And I do believe there's a lot more research to be done there from a critical perspective. Now, one last thing I've started to look at is this reconfiguration of effective labor with Alexa and algorithmic capitalism. So Alexa, of course, wants to be part of the family. Yeah? Uh, and the users are expected to put some level of effort into fostering a relationship with their assistant. And this is key for Alexa to deploy addictive hooks and turn into a permanent fixture of the household. So Alexa is programmed to interact 
at the level of affects and emotions with the household. It can memorize birthdays, favorite dishes, and favorite TV shows. Uh, you can have Alexa recite some traditional family stories and anecdotes to your guests. You know, so that type of stuff. Um, Recall as well, so the figures of the housewife and the migrant domestic worker in social reproduction theory who clean the house of its negative effects, being on the receiving end of frustration, rudeness, uh, but responding with a smile, availability, good moods, while remaining themselves as invisible as possible. So this affective circulation, as Whitney puts it, is tributary of gendered, racial and class power relations. And this metabolism of effects is also invested by the presence of Alexa then. Her voice, her responses to commands. There are also reasons why most of these products come with a female voice. Um, and there are some studies that show now how people tend to treat Alexa in very obnoxious ways. So yelling at it, authoritarian tone, insults. And Amazon has even patented a new innovation that allows Alexa to recognize moods and adjust accordingly to so keep, it, keep its voice down or apologize even. So there are two ways to think of this at the moral level, right? So either it's a good, so it lets humans ventilate, you know, angry and abusive behavior on machines, so no real harm done and negative effects get absorbed and the effect metabolism is better for it. On the other hand, though, and that's where I tend to sit, isn't it a pernicious form of enabling where bursts of anger and, and yelling and insults are legitimized and might it not lead to an actual increase in negative effects when they are normalized, accepted uh, and cautioned like this? So no one wants to see how privileged kids who yell at their Alexa every hour of the day are going to speak to other people and less privileged people in society, right? So in any case, there's, there's a kind of, of reproduction with Alexa of, of, of behavior and attitudes that treat domestic labor as something inferior, of lower status done by someone or something on which we can ventilate and discharge anger and frustrations, which I find very troubling. Uh, finally, to conclude, let me suggest uh, uh, that while affecting the domestic sphere in these three ways, so commodification, extraction, and reconfiguration of effective labor, I think we can also think of Alexa uh, uh, as probably cap algorithmic capitalism's greatest fetish, a double fetish, I would even venture to suggest. A double fetish, on the one hand, it contributes in hiding veiling the material structure of actual precarious labor that makes Amazon and its platform function. So Alexa constructs a representation that invisibilizes the exploitation of Amazon workers all across the contemporary labor landscape. Secondly, it acts as a fetish in the sense that it inverts the Lordship and bondage relation, to use Hegelian terms. I'm, I'm not sure if David McNally is listening. Uh, but the user of Alexa experiences his or her relation to it as mastery. And you command Alexa. While in reality, it is him or her who is, through Alexa, completely subjugated to the power of Amazon's algorithms and completely enslaved to Amazon's capitalist fluxes in and out of the household. 
Um, so I, I'm trying to uh, conceptualize and, 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 and dig a little bit more into that notion of, of fetishism. Um, but I'll, I'll end on this uh, for today. So thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jonathan. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, Jonathan, that there are no plans for HM to have Alexa chairing any sessions next year, although I've become somewhat sympathetic with the idea. Okay, uh, Hester, would you like to take it up from here? Thank you, Paul. And th thank you, Jonathan. That was riveting, actually. Um, so the question that I want to address, can you hear me okay, Paul? The question I want to address in this paper is, in what ways do the processes of social reproduction entail the reproduction of patriarchal relations, and in what ways does the theory of SRT challenge them? I think this is an issue that SRT theorists have to tackle. Feminist struggles since the 1970s have located the nexus of power by men over women at many different social levels education, marriage, the workforce, politics, the health care system, and so forth. Thus, black women scholars have shown the degree to which race, as well as sex, governs the administration of the health care system. Now, the introduction, I want to say, the introduction into mainstream socialist discussion of the social reproduction framework has been an enormous advance after so many years of struggle by feminist scholars and activists to get Marxist circles to understand the profound challenge and promise of a Marxist feminist framework. The years of work by feminists in the HM orbit deserve great credit in this project. And that includes notably my colleague Sue Ferguson. <laughs> but while the social reproduction framework brings important insights to the analysis of the widespread women's rebellions, which in our day represent a cutting edge of challenge to imperialist capitalism, I feel that the issue of male power over women at an individual and a social level is getting insufficient theoretical and practical attention. So the point of this intervention is to ask some questions about this relative silence. So I have to start with a little bit of autobiography in classic 1970s consciousness raising style. When I learned history at Yale, the issue of patriarchy did not arise in my studies. No one questioned the nation state, the existence of war, the control of women's fertility. History was presented, in fact, as the rise of the nation state and centuries of rivalry across the globe. And religion and the history of religious wars, consequent to the rise of Protestantism, was covered extensively, but not the treatment of women by religious orthodoxies. For example, there was no trace in my graduate training of the analysis later provided by Silvia Federici on the relation of mercantile capitalism to the burning of witches, which she connected to the control of fertility, which was part, of course, of the economic theory of mercantilism, which required control of population. There was an astounding lack of attention by centuries of male scholars to the origins and development of masculine power in most complex societies, with honorable exceptions, perhaps, to the anthropologists and those informed by their writings, such as Engels. So 
when I go to the beginning of my thinking about this, it's a, it's the generation of feminist writing of the 1970s. Um, and we all recall feminist left theory, theorizing of the 70s, part of the new left, and in conflict with its leadership, raised the question of male domination and was ridiculed. And in fact, the rage of new left women over that ridicule encountered by their brothers gives birth to consciousness raising. So we have the rise of women's studies following black studies starting to ask the question, where does male domination and patriarchy come from? So in the 1970s, the leading theories were A, what was called dual systems theory, and B, a single system. Um, so dual systems theory means um, there's patriarchy forever, and capitalism historically located variously with the mercantile period and the rise of capitalism proper in the 18th century. So um, the question is, um, if we go to the dual systems theory, there's patriarchy pre-existing, and then there's capitalism, which absorbs and makes use of male domination as part of its system of economic and political power. But this pushes off the issue, where does patriarchy itself come from? And we can recall that the rise of feminist arguments in the 70s produced a wave of male theorists who seek to beg the question by arguing that male domination is located in male physiology, greater male upper body strength, deeper voices obviously designed for leadership, plus primate behavior and related theories of natural origin. And in fact, this is countered by feminist studies of primate behavior, pointing to, for example, the society of the bonobos, which have free sexual expression, same-sex activity, and an absence of male aggression. So people like um, the historian Gerda Lerner and the anthropologist Raina Rapp start to ask the question, can we locate a historical moment where we see the invention and development of patriarchy? Rejecting a human nature argument or an argument from animal behavior they sought to locate this form of social organization in the history of civilization, looking at the rise of the state in ancient societies that moved social organization to the level of state power. So drawing on the work of Engels, who more than Marx, dare I say, sees male power in the family as an issue to be resolved under socialism. So we can point to Michael Hudson's work on the Jubilee, um, he's describing power in the ancient state societies like Mesopotamia, located in the temple and the state with a rigid class system that requires control of military power, that is, the peasantry, and therefore control of fertility. See also our esteemed college Dave, colleague Dave McNally, who points to the control of women in warfare in ancient Greece and Rome and other ancient societies. They are the majority of slaves as various societies conduct constant warfare for economic spoils. So anthropologists contrast this with simple, formerly called primitive societies, with small numbers of kinship-based cultures where social roles are clearly defined, but there is less emphasis on power systems. And I refer here to the classic article by Eleanor Leacock on the Montagnier of Canada and their encounter with the Jesuits in the 17th century in conjunction with the fur trade. What is wrong with these people? 
They refuse to beat their children. They refuse to control the sexual experiences of their daughters. A clear case study of how patriarchal control is brought to bear with the introduction of a money economy. It seems clear that the rise of capitalism makes use of a pre-existing patriarchal structure embodied in the state, at least if we are talking about Europe. So, for example, the work of Carol Pateman on the assumption of male domination in marriage that underlay the presumably revolutionary work of John Locke in contesting the divine king. Western political evolution develops the rights of man, sick, to self-governance without challenging the rights of husbands and fathers. Within the analysis put forward by social feminists in the 1970s, Lisa Vogel is now correctly being credited with the development of what we are now calling social reproduction theory, or SRT. In her groundbreaking analysis, Vogel argues against those socialist feminists who want to point to two separate systems of capitalism and patriarchy, and instead posits a single system of patriarchal capitalism. Although she told me the other day she doesn't like the word patriarchy and doesn't like to use it. Um, her work goes unnoticed virtually when it appears in 1983, but her insights are revived and become the basis of a new analysis when republished by Haymarket with the introduction by McNally and Ferguson. Vogel points to the famous passage in Capital One where Marx mentions casually that the one commodity capitalism cannot supply for itself is labor. What is the source of labor? Women's reproductive capacity plus enslavement plus immigration. This insight gives rise to, rise to SRT, social reproduction theory, which as developed by Titi Bhattacharya, Sue Ferguson, other Canadian theorists like Meg Luxton and Kate Bazanson, Nancy Fraser and Chinsia Arutza, among others, wants to examine the role of women in the continuation development of capitalist societies that adopt a social welfare system, broadly speaking, after World War II. So SRT comes in at the um, jumping way uh, to the near present um, in the period that we're now in. Um, in the wake of neoliberalism, which broadly speaking has sought to decimate social welfare measures and to roll back the role of the state in providing social supports that mitigate the ravages of pure capitalism, ideologically, the role of the state under neoliberal doctrine has been clawed back. Now it includes military and police power, protection of capital accumulation by the ruling and owning classes, and not the provision of basic necessities for the poor and the working class. And we can see that in our current politics with the absolute refusal of the U.S. Senate to, to rescue the people who are dying, uh, or dying either of COVID or dying of unemployment. While unevenly applied, this belief system has been powerful enough to delegitimize those elements of the welfare state that previously mitigated the effects of austerity on nutrition, child welfare, education, health care, and the like. The resulting crisis of care, as Nancy Fraser has termed it, has produced a strong political reaction among women and their supporters. The rise of SRT has tracked and followed the rebellions around the globe. Most recently, as we speak, the struggle for abortion rights in Poland, the similar struggle in Argentina, 
the International Women's Day marches in Spain and all around the world, the teachers' strikes and the women's marches in the United States, among many other rebellions, all expressing the view that the role of the state as whittled away by neoliberal policies is not acceptable to those whose responsibilities as teachers, social workers, mothers, include both the reproduction of a new generation and the care required to produce them as workers. But this analysis requires us to raise the question, where exactly is patriarchy located now? If we are still struggling with the issue of how patriarchy relates to capitalism, we have to encounter the reality that it is the economic transformation of the 1970s that essentially created this new wave of feminism. The restructuring of the world economy to counter the falling rates of profit in that decade deliberately moved to a greater use of women's labor, both in the rich countries and the developed world, where the bulk of many kinds of manufacturing has been relocated. The creation of a largely female workforce in many industries, such as electronics and garment manufacturing, is the material base for the rise of feminist consciousness on a world scale, as documented by Marie Lise and many other writers. So if it is women who are the backbone of social reproduction, nurses, teachers, social workers, healthcare workers, what is their relationship to the men who are both their co-workers and their lovers, fathers, and sons, and brothers? And here we have to encounter the complexity of patriarchal relations, which stretch from individual family relationships to legal provisions regarding marriage, sexual identity, labor, to the very structure of the nation state and beyond. And another question outside the scope of this brief inquiry is the shape of patriarchy in cultures like China and Japan or the Middle East, as explored by Denise Candiotti, who describes what she called a patriarchal bargain for power, shame mothers and grandmothers in various Muslim societies. The famous quote from Hegel, the owl of Minerva flies only at dusk, rings in my ears. Are we at the cusp of an era in which male power over women is starting to wane, at least in the developed world? On the one hand, we can point to the journalistic coverage documenting that the most effective response to the pandemic is in some cases correlated to the leadership of women, like Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and Angela Merkel in Germany, or the rise of the Me Too women in the U.S., which has reverberated also in countries around the world. On the other hand, the existence of murderous young men calling themselves incels, the rate at which wives are murdered here and in France and all around the world, what appears to be an acceleration of violence against women in countries like the US, India, and Pakistan, it would appear that the rise of economic and political power among some women is intolerable to a wide range of men, including brothers, husbands, and fathers. Now, here we have to distinguish between various forms of patriarchy in the current scene. The medieval treatment of women forced into marriage even before puberty in some less developed societies coexists jarringly with the election of women into the highest political office in rich developed countries. Even the United States has tiptoed into accepting female leadership with the election of Kamala Harris as vice president. 
Do we accept the idea that it's in its current form, international capitalism tends to erode patriarchal norms, or would we argue that it accelerates and intensifies them? So I'll end with this. Um, uh, my question is, how do social reproduction theorists address this question? I have no answers, only questions. Thanks very much, Hester. That's quite a provocative and interesting discussion, and I'm sure Sue will add to it. Sue. Well, thank you, and I, I, I mean, I'm just so pleased to be on this panel. And Jonathan and Hester, both your presentations have uh, have been fascinating. So I'm, I'm really excited to do this. So uh, thank you to Chen. Thanks to Paul for uh, pulling this together. Uh, just a quick uh, correction in how you introduced me. I didn't co-author that book with, with Lisa, but I, but I did um, co-author the introduction to the book uh, to Lisa's uh, Marxism and the Impression of Women uh, that was reissued uh, not too long ago. Uh, so um, I'll just jump into it. I, I'm, my title is Social Reproduction Theory, New Challenges. The intention is to think about the challenges that are presented from the current moment. Uh, so uh, anyway, here we go. So as the reality of living through a global pandemic and sweeping anti-racist resistance sink in, the SRT lens has proven especially helpful. Uh, three things became clear really quickly. The centrality of social reproductive labor to the capitalist system, the utter under-resourcing and undervaluing of capitalist life-making, which of course is contradicts the first point. Uh, and third, the extent to which ordinary people will and must self-organize around social reproductive labor in order both to compensate for the gaps in social reproduction from above uh, by developing alternative collective forms of life-making, but also importantly, to confront the bosses and public officials to better resource the conditions of social reproduction through their walkouts and protests. So these general in insights, like all good theoretical pro projects, orient us as much as they open up, I think, discussions for, for thinking beyond uh, where we're at. So I want to use my 15 minutes to explore where exactly they lead us and, well, or where maybe they lead us, I guess, and how we can learn from this period how what we can learn from this period can enrich the SRT analysis. So in my book that Paul mentioned, I refer to SRT as the Marxian school of social reproduction. In order to distinguish it from the autonomous influence tradition that traces back to the wages for housework camping. So that distinction, as many of you will know, revolves around the question of value. Does unwaged and public sector wage public sector social reproductive work uh, directly generate capitalist value or not? And that long-standing debate is important, uh, I argue in the book, and I'm arguing here for how we understand and how we fight against capitalism as a totalizing but differentiated system. So today I'm going to grapple with how the current period draws out precisely those two impulses toward totalization and towards differentiation uh, for a brief discussion, brief and, and very surface level, I'm afraid, discussion of three things, uh, racism and social oppression, generally, more generally, violence and policing, and the state. Um, so I reflect on... Um, Sorry, uh, I reflect on how what we're 
learning offers an opportunity to enrich SRT analysis and points to the ongoing relevance of the question of value production, which is why I'm going to also conclude with a sure defense of SRT's theorization of value. Uh, I'm going to apologize that the sections are very brief outlines, and I'm going to apologize because there's a bit of an abrupt transition between them, and I completely end very abruptly. So uh, that's more for time considerations. Um, okay, so beginning with racism and social oppressions more generally. So what Okay, thanks very much for your patience. We've had some technical issues, which uh, I blame on, on Trump administration in Texas. Uh, we're going to return to Sue. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to return to her visually, but she will be with us audially. So, Sue. Thanks, Paul. I'm so sorry. I don't uh, know really what happened, but uh, I like your explanation, Paul, that it has to do with Trump and having the socialists in Texas, I guess. Uh, okay, so just to continue, I'm doing these three sections, I'm, three things that I'm going to talk about, three briefly talk about, uh, about some of the ways in which, you know, SRT can kind of enrich itself from learning from the current period. Uh, the first one was racism uh, slash social oppression. So one thing this pandemic makes clear is that although viruses do not discriminate, regimes of social reproduction do. One can't ignore the deeply racialized patterns that have emerged in the statistics about whose bodies have been placed most at risk in the top-down management of social reproduction. And you'll probably all be familiar with the statistics. I won't go through all that for you right now. Uh, but as others have pointed out, Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore's stricture that, quote, racism specifically is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death could not be more apt. So following Gilmore's lead, SRT has an opportunity to highlight and elaborate how that group differentiated vulnerability is enacted in and through the logic of life making's necessary but contradictory relationship to value making. So certain insights are relatively straightforward and have been well discussed in, uh, already. Uh, one is channeling, you know, basically channeling racialized workers into low-waged frontline work, uh, along with decades-long dis disinvestment and privatization of things like education healthcare, housing, and other social services has clearly made certain racialized populations more vulnerable than others, uh, and, not, and, and, and other marginalized populations as well, actually. Um, but there have been other less obvious and less explored aspects of racialized social reproduction that the current period highlights. And to identify just three, and these are just areas that I think we could benefit from um, thinking more about, I guess. Uh, the first is the punishing international debt regimes that have left whole countries completely overwhelmed dealing with a public health crisis as many global south countries continue or, sorry spend more on debt payments than they do on their own national public health services we are reminded how social reproductive regimes are implicated in global imperialist relations that deserve much more analytic and uh, political attention uh, another is the massive expansion of personal debt and credit, which is only intensifying as this she session continues. And that involves capital more directly and personally and destabilizing personal household 
social reproduction. And there's a couple um, books that I would recommend people uh, take a look at that deal that start to deal with these questions. One being uh, Lucy Cavalleros and Veronica Gago's work on debt, which Pluto in our uh, series is going to be um, republishing in English, translating and publishing in English, called The Feminist Reading of Debt. Another is Kianga Yamata Taylor's book on banking and the real estate industry's undermining of, of black home ownership, race for profits, that came out from University of North Carolina. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, migrant labor's what I call migrant labor's double indemnity. I, I think it's, SRT has to grapple with the fact that here we have legally positioned people who are legally positioned outside the host countries or or regions social reproductive regimes, but my but as migrant laborers they are nonetheless performing essential jobs in the social reproductive commodity chain as field workers and food packaging. They're socially excluded, but systemically pivotal people. Um, so those are just three perhaps less obvious ways that the pandemic highlights how capitalist regimes of social reproduction different, differentiate populations, subjecting some more than others to the inherent violence of the system. So, and my next category is violence and policing. So violence, from a SRT perspective, is systemic, but not reducible to strictly economic, that is value producing dynamics, because life making is not directly subsumed to capital's domination. Uh, yet, SRT, and here I totally agree with Hester, has not to date devoted much discussion to its myriad forms in capitalist societies. And I really appreciate, Hester, what, what you're pushing on there. Um, in terms of patriarchal violence. I'll say a little bit more about uh, one form here, just because uh, it's been occupying my mind a little bit uh, for obvious reasons, and that is the institutionalized yet personal violence of policing. The pandemic, it's important to note, has done nothing to stem the tide of fatal police shootings in the US with an average of 19.4 every week despite the fact that crime rates after falling in the spring have largely returned to pre-COVID levels. Um, so to grasp how is policing implicated in our life-making processes, I think it's helpful to start with the proposition that policing is in fact a form of coercive social reproduction from above. As a civilian armed force of the state, cops and border officials are charged in the first instance with enforcing property laws that ensure the dispossession of the means of our survival that makes social reproduction a struggle in the first place. But secondly, they're charged with regulating certain racialized, sexualized, colonized, disabled people's everyday life making. And on that second point, I'm really struck by how state sanctioned and yet personal violence targets, especially, though not exclusively, of course, people's public lives and life making. So specifically on the streets and in schools, places that are for marginalized people, potentially places of terror, but also potentially places of sanctuary. So while many trans and queer kids, for instance, are terrorized in schools, many others uh, find support there that they're lacking at home through friendships and counseling. In fact, one of the reported fallouts from the lockdown has been how anxiety, drug overdoses and suicide rates are increasing, um, as well as homelessness, in part due to the inaccessibility of such essential life-making supports. 
Um, so police presence undermines the possibility that these public spaces can be places of refuge and forces marginalized people back into the possibly dysfunctional and threatening spa private spaces of social reproduction on the one hand, or more also into jails, prisons, and detention centers where coercive social reproduction is the order of the day on the other. So I think that idea of thinking about coercive social reproduction from above is, is something we might be a fruitful way of thinking of adding to enriching the SRT um, understandings of, of social reproduction and racialization. It seems reasonable then to consider the extent to which the multiracial Black-led abolitionist uprising since May 25th is in fact a struggle over social reproduction. We need only look to the 2009 statement from critical, critical resistance to see how the framing fits. It reads, in part, what if we got together with members of our communities and created systems of support for each other? We are capable of looking after and caring for one another, providing each other with our basic human needs, creating community self-determination. Relying on and deploying policing denies our ability to do this, to create real safety in our communities. So that abolitionist demand to defund police is nothing short then of a vision of collective democratic control over the conditions of social reproduction. Insofar as that vision is pursued by creating autonomous places and practices beyond and supposedly, well, supposedly beyond and resistant to capital, though it will confront severe limits. SRT needs to, can and should, I think, learn from the different visions within the movement as it continues to analyze the ways in which the struggle against racism can and must be seen as a universal class struggle. And then my final, uh, before concluding and quite brief um, comments are going to be on about the state. Um, so much ink was spilled very early on in the pandemic about the state and people were asking, as you may recall, was this the end of neoliberalism and the resurrection of Keynesianism? Um, or is it the beginning or continuation perhaps of fascism? So, um, Whatever one, however one answers, the question of what we can learn from these exceptional operations of state power is important for SRT. Uh, much of the discussion first resolved, revolved, if you can recall, around Agamben's uh, arguments against lockdowns and mask the mask mandate. Under COVID capitalism, he suggested, we're living in a, quote, state of exception in which the biopolitical impulses of state power are reducing us to, quote, bare life. So Michael Bray, for his part, emphasized the opposite state di dynamics. Despite the neoliberal destruction of welfare uh, infrastructure and intensification of policing that we've seen over the last 40 years, um, both of which undermine our expectations of help from the state, he argues states have continued to provide and even increase spending on social services. The state, he reasons, actually needs to secure or to be seen to secure the well-being of those it purportedly represents. His analysis of the current conjuncture portrays a state that can be pushed and pulled in different directions, even if it is, in the end, answerable to capital. Bray's view of the state is in fact prevalent in the wider social democratic literature on social reproduction. And both his and Agamben's theories resonate with many engaged in the struggle. SRT needs to engage with these ideas to try to move beyond some of their limits. 
Chinzia Ruza, Tithi Bhattacharya, and Gareth Dale have begun that process, arguing on the one hand for the more contingent nature of state responses than Agamben uh, allows, and on the other for the importance and possibility of clarifying uh, what Tithi and Gareth call general principles of statehood that could that include a commitment to restoring economic growth and a prevalent but uh, reluctant investment in social reproduction. We need to keep refining what we mean by by the suggestion that the states that states negotiate the contradiction between life making and value making in ways that draw on and reinforce social oppressions, emphasizing that uh, because it is capital's negotiator, the state is not to be captured but must in fact be overturned. Uh, so this uh, leads me to the final section, concluding section. Um, each of the foregoing analyses, or they're not analyses, but ideas, um, bids us to uh, grasp the simultaneity with which capitalism differentiates and totalizes our experiences. That's why I return to the value debate the, and SRT's insistence that much social reproductive labor is not productive of capitalist value. In this moment, the left needs clarity and a fulsome rationale for seeing why and how those who engage in fights for uh, control over the conditions of our social reproduction, that is, whether they're waged or unwaged, and I have in mind, you know, the fights uh, led by abolitionists, migrant rights activists, etc., but also teachers, nurses, sanitation workers, um, are central to the to the anti-capitalist struggle. So all those those social reproductive strikes are central to the anti-capitalist struggle, but they are uh, they are also not in the same position vis-a-vis -vis capital as waged productive workers who directly confront capital's power at the workplace. And I think one of the better things that have been written about this already is uh, is on the Spectre White website by uh, Kate Doyle Griffiths. Uh, I cannot in the short presentation defend the Marxist theory of value. I don't think you'd want me to and, uh, briefly go over it anyway uh, with so little uh, in such a condensed way um, and why it is appropriate to see much social reproductive work as unproductive. Uh, but I will instead just jump into one recent political critique that sort of stems from that. And that and that uh, was published last year in Radical Philosophy by Alessandro Mazadri and I understand is uh, elaborated upon in forthcoming in Antipode. And I think Mazadri's critique, if I understand it correctly, is that SRT fails to see that the capitalist forms of production are varied and all forms contribute to the production of value and are in fact generative of value. Um, because of this, SRT is said to exclude from its framework the varied ways in which people experience exploitation under capitalism, and thus the racialized and colonized populations also, also exclude the racialized and colonized populations who tend to perform non-waged work. So to briefly highlight a few key points in my response, which is still a work in progress. Mazadri is correct to say that SRT does not see all forms of production as generative of value, but she misreads us to say that SRT does not see that various forms of production contribute to value creation. The latter is precisely what we are at pains to argue. Capitalism is not simply a system of value producing wage labor, nor can it be, uh, or even a wage labor period. In this, I think we totally agree with Ms. Adry. Uh, its existence requires other forms of production, most notably social reproductive labor, but also, for example, peasant and forced labor, and 
independent commodity production. SRT goes on to propose that non-value productive social reproductive labor, non-value productive social reproductive labor is essential um, but because it does not generate or realize value in, through the process of its production, it is also contradictory to capitalist profit-making. And it is this contradiction that allows us to grasp the salience of other relations of social do domination, the racism, the sexism, colonialism, ableism, cis-heterosexism, um, in shaping the contours and determining the outcomes of our lives. And SRT further supports uh, proposes that the logic of life-affirming labor can and will be turned against those forms of domination. Rather than politically exclude workers who do not perform conventional wage labor, SRT therefore argues that they are central to fighting capitalism. That is, SRT argues that the ground that comprises capital is differentiated within a unitary system, and so then is the ground uh, for resisting capital. That's why SRT calls upon anti-capitalist activists and movements to attend to that differentiation. And that this is where it's so important. It is what leads us to make the political argument that, in fact, we need to develop a political perspective that constantly looks for ways to build solidarity across uh, those forms of production. So to argue, as Ms. Adri and, and a lot of the, that tradition, I think, that she comes out of, um, argues that instead that all forms of production are value productive, um, first, I think, assume, I think, assumes a more self-evident basis for solidarity than actually exists. We're all productive workers. We can, we can all Sort of, we're in the same relationship. Everybody is in the same relationship vis-a-vis -vis capital, um, even if they have different forms of production. Uh, so that's one thing. Secondly, it has the paradoxical effect then of focusing resistance on value creation, not on social oppressions that shape people's uh, for various forms of production for capital. And I should actually clarify that it doesn't. I, I don't think a lot of these people, a lot of you know, that tradition, the wages for housework uh, tradition, has. Um, uh, ignores oppressions so much as I just think the logic of their position does not point you in the direction of um, fighting oppression, that logic of their position points you in the direction of um, fighting value creation. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, it risks therefore underplaying the work that needs to be done to build solidarity. And I think that that's the work that is most pressing for the Marxist left at this point uh, in uh, where we are. So I will end there. And again, apologies for all the technical issues and thank you for your patience. Okay, thanks very much, Sue. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting set of papers for this panel. And we can start now with two questions. The first question is from Tara Needham. And that question is, how can we think about the relationship between teachers, education and professional women during the pandemic with white collar women forced to resume social reproduction tasks? I suppose the second question I'll pose myself, which is really to come in on what Sue was saying at the end. And that is, 
when we look at the relationship between value theory and social reproduction theory, and we think about the way in which social reproduction occurs both in coercive forms, but also in normalizing forms. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Jonathan's paper and the way in which normalization takes place so that we see our everyday activities reflected within these regimes. To what extent is the difference in the last two positions that Sue outlined, one that there tends to be a more gradiated approach which prioritizes value, whereas with social reproduction there is a more holistic approach which is inclusive of value, but also inclusive of other things. And I guess uh, I guess that question really is more methodological than anything else. Who'd like to take this up first? I think Sue should answer it. <laughs> oh God! Okay. <laughs> Am I? Yeah, I'm still not. I'm still liked. Okay. Um, I can. I, I'm just, sorry. I'm going to look first at Tara Needham's question again. How can we think about the relationship between teachers, education, and professional women during the pandemic with white collar women forced to resume social reproduction? Yeah. I. You know. I think. So I don't know if this is um, this certainly isn't a complete answer to that, but I but I think that part of the when we're thinking about the differentiation of social reproductive regimes, the way in which they differentiate groups of people, I think you're getting um, you know it's not just that they differentiate men from women, but they also differentiate women from women too. And so I think if you're talking about professional women, meaning, you know, the people who are in upper management and banking and uh, sitting on boards of, of, um, of uh, whatever they are called, <laughs> executive boards of, of companies, uh, corporate boards, um, that and comparing them, you know, they clearly have a different relationship to this pandemic than both the teachers and uh, nurses, I would say, et cetera. So I think the I think we have to see there is both a um, way in which they share a um, perhaps the you know some experiences of the pandemic in terms of intensifying their domestic labor. And yet, because of their, you know, things that they do share, but they also have very distinct and different uh, uh, relationships in terms of what their social um, labor involves. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if that's an adequate answer, and I'll let the others come in if they um, have some thoughts on that too. Um, Paul, I really appreciate, you know, you pointing out absolutely. And I think that's a really helpful, actually, distinction between coercive uh, social reproduction and normalizing social reproduction. Um, I'm losing track of what the actual question was behind that. Um, sorry, <laughs> I've lost it already. So I, either you can repeat it or somebody wants to add, go ahead. <laughs> That's fine, sir. I mean, I, I just think I wanted to, I suppose I was making two points. One is I think that distinction's rather interesting in looking at what how a social reproduction yeah. works. And then that, that latter debate on value theory and social reproduction that you were discussing, it just seems to me that 
the, the biggest difference is the way in which the theory operates, which is there is a more inclusive yes. and flat, if you like, notion to social reproduction, yeah. whereas value theory is often gradiated. We look at value production first and then we work outward. Yes. And of course, there are gradations within that. But your yeah. answer was fine. Yes, I was going to say, sorry, that, that just, I mean, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there is a flattening out when you tend to think of everything as value productive. Um, I, I struggle myself sometimes with how much that really matters in terms of political, uh, working things out politically, but I think it does matter. I think, uh, uh, you know, I think ultimately it does matter. I just, I, I understand though that people on the ground fighting often don't find that particularly interesting or <laughs> important to discuss value theory. Hester and Jonathan, any responses, thoughts? Well, um, I'll just say um, that Tara Needham's question it just makes me think of class and the, um, you know, the, the feminism has always struggled with um, using only gender as a category, you know, and it's obviously been challenged from the world of, of um, racial equality. But also, this is it's a class question. I mean, the pandemic has really, in addition to laying bare, as Sue said, the absolute threadbare um, social welfare system and the, particularly the public health system, the underfunding of it. But it's also laid bare who can stay, you know, who can stay home and shelter in place and who has to work. And so this, that's an obstacle to solidarity among women and always has been. And, I, you know, I think the Feminist Project has kind of always if I may say it's a sweeping generalization, has always skated past that issue of class, you know, and yet it, it's, it's fundamental. So that's my comment. Right, and right, and Tara says women who are working from home with the kids, exactly. Who has the privilege, of so-called privilege of doing that? Jonathan. Um. Yes, maybe on the point, maybe just a short comment on the point of, of value theory. And I, I, um, I mean, it, it seems to me, and I always approach this this question of, of value production from a temporal perspective, because that you know, temp, time studies are where I come from. And I, I, what strikes me is maybe not a you know an answer to the question, but maybe uh, something that I think social reproduction theory can 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 start to think about, and 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 you know, Marxian um, theorizing more generally is that idea not so much that because we hear a lot you know about you know the, the autopsy of value theory and marx's value theory does not work anymore with this new data economy and all of this and I'm, I'm, i mean there are some ways in which there are important changes and i think we need to take note of that and and, and really need to think through these changes but i think that the one the one point in value theory where i think we need to do some serious rethinking is on the category of labor time uh, and labor time as this uh, uh, one type of time that is productive of exchange value. And here, I'm, I'm not sure that this conceptual apparatus holds as much as we would like to think uh, anymore in the sense that, well, from both from an individual perspective or from a class perspective, um, there's a way in which data extraction 
Um, so data is not producing a value. Data is not value. Data is a, is a means of production. It's a material, right, that these uh, new forms of capitalists use in order to create valuable products, such as protective products or targeted advertising or these type of things. So, however, data is not extracted from, you know, from nature. It's not a natural resource, right? It's not a product of labor time either. And that that's where I think we need to rethink the thing. So data here is just a, you know, part of the general human experience that is produced not while people are working. Obviously, you know, data is produced when you're working, but when you're not as well, we're producing data right now in this conference, but we'll be producing data later on uh, uh, when we are, you know, by ourselves in our homes, uh, uh, with smart appliances around ourselves. So uh, we're producing data all the time by using our phones, right? So so this category of labor time as this uh, uh, primordial uh, uh, space-time where value is produced or value comes from in terms of its link with human experience, I think needs to be retaught. Since that we need to think of both individual and from a class perspective, more aspects of life, including social reproduction tasks, domestic tasks that are now creative of means of production that are now participating in capital's exploitation of not just labor, but human experience at large as well. So I, th I think that Marx's value theory is still central in order to understand how capitalism works. There's no question about this. But we need to think about the temporal categories, I think, in a quite a different way now. Do you want to say a little bit more about how you would do that, Jonathan? Well, um, I mean, we can look at it historically, for example. So if you have... Uh, an historical understanding of how time regimes come about, right? And you start to explore how it's in the Fordist period, which I evoked earlier, the temporal regime seems to uh, be separated in, you know, what we call the 888 regimes. You have eight hours of work, eight hours of so-called leisure, and eight hours of sleep. So that's the typical, you know, temporal regime for industrial workers and then for women who are at home, you need to add domestic work to this, right? Uh, so you have these temporal categories which are, are quite strict uh, uh, and the production of value is associated with labor time spent at the job. So there's a spatial and temporal distinction here. While when you're out of the job, you're not producing value. Um, um, and I think that fits with how social reproduction theory has theorized these things so far. Uh, however, now uh, we get to uh, a point where I think that the distinction between labor time and leisure time is not important in terms of generation of data. Um, um, so if, if we're looking at, you know, the top 10 companies in the world right now, they, you know, about six or seven of them are data capitalists. Yeah? And they, pr they produce, they generate data, and they want people to generate data as much as possible. So data is generated not just through labor time, but through leisure time as well. So these categories and the separation of these categories hold a little bit less, I think, now. So we can think of, and I try to develop in another paper, which I'm not supposed to talk about today, but another paper, the, the, the concept of captive time. So being captive to appliances, to devices, whether at work or not, captive time is productive of 
uh, of data, of, of the materials that it, it takes capital in order to create value. So captive time is a concept I'm looking at. Attention time as well, which has been developed in some uh, rather non-Marxian actually analysis, which is also interesting. So to rethink these categories of time in order to upgrade a little bit, I would say, how we understand what type of time is productive of value, or what type of time is colonized or tied to capital uh, in novel ways. So I think I think uh, this this is how I'm trying to go about it so far. It's an ongoing project. Okay, I suppose one other question we can ask for all three of you. This panel, in a sense, was brought together to reflect on social reproduction theory as now quite an established paradigm through which to look at both political struggles and social relations of production. To what extent do you think social reproduction theory is less successful in the sense of its methodology and apparatus for critical examination? In other words, you might argue a Marxist, feminist, a queer, uh, anti-racist might do better, but actually it's far more effective and useful as a direct and imminent political critique which feeds into political responses. And anyone can say that first. I will take a a bit of a stab at that. Um, I think that um, social reproduction theory is best to think of as an overall conceptualization or framework for understanding the structural dynamics of particular power relations in society and in ways that actually incorporate, um, you know, all forms of labor, unlike, so if you take a, uh, you know, conventional, I don't know, orthodox, I don't know, the understanding from Marxism that, that has, you know, excluded all sorts of labor or has just assumed that the other labor is there. This social reproduction theory has opened that up and has made that a more successful, um, uh, uh, has, has, has it, through doing that, identified that there are other intervening dynamics. I think it has learned an incredible am- amount from intersectionality feminism. One of the panels, earlier panels I had watched was the one that uh, that Holly and Ashley and you, Paul, uh, did on intersectionality. And, I, and, you know, I tend to agree that, well, yeah, one of the things that I think is sort of interesting about that whole discussion is that, um, you know, there's a tendency to try and say, well, it's this theory or that theory and we have and we have to, you know, choose between them and, or, you know, but really what I think is the way theory really evolves is more uh, dialectical than that. And that, in fact, what we have, what, what's been happening with SRT, I think anyway, has been that, you know, it's tried to incorporate the best insights from, social, from intersectionality feminism, which does say, okay, let's take Take a look at, um, you know, the other power d- dynamics grounded in people's experiences, uh, and and t- so you know, and and let's look at the sort of 
more messy world uh, that we need to to understand and understand them as you know each other as as kind of influential as um, uh, but not just as an uh, experiential level but in but to think through kind of structural elements of how in socially reproducing ourselves we can learn from those what we know about the other structures of other oppressions. And so I think um, that, that, you know, there's some scope within social reproduction theory, therefore for kind of a critical examination of all sorts of different oppressions, but I don't think it's exhaustive. That's what I'm trying to say. And that there, and that I think there's still, um, you know, space, uh, and I welcome you know, people to, to, to add to it. I think there's so much interesting stuff that's been done in cultural studies that we can learn from that uh, adds to, enhances the analysis. I don't think any theory does everything, quite honestly. And uh, I don't think we should expect that as social reproduction theory either. But um, so I, you know, I tend not to kind of oppose it to so much as, or oppose SRT to other things um, so much as to say, look, this is an expand, you know, there's, it's constantly expanding, uh, integrating ideas, but uh, it's not going to do absolutely everything. So I don't, I, anyway, I'll shut up now. But <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can just, follow up on that. It seems to me that, you know, if you think about the world that Marx lived in and the, the position of women, you know, in that in that society, and, and that, I think, SRT is really reflecting this transformation in the lives of women because, as I said, capitalism has actually decided women's labor is what it really needs more than anything. And so that's had this transformative effect, including the consciousness of women. Um, so I think I agree with Sue. We don't want SRT to be everything for everybody, but it, it really is, is, is saying what would Marxism have been like if, if Marx were living now? You know, he wouldn't have been able to talk that way about, about the family, you know, and about the worker you know, the quintessential factory worker when now we're in the gig economy and everyone is just thrown into this morass of, you know, scratching out a living in a, in a, in a system that is just systematically denying people the, the, the wherewithal to live. So I think it's a, it's a lens, you know, I would see it as a lens which comes from fundamentally from, you know, Marxist feminism, black feminism, um, and, uh, you know, this sort of range of thinkers that are reacting, in a sense, we're reacting to this world and saying, look, if you're going to be a Marxist, you have to be talking in a different way about how gender works, how race works, how immigration works. I mean, you know, this post-globalization world is, is using people in so many different ways. And I think it's a, it's a lens or a a means of, of, of broadening your analysis. So that's really the claim I would make. Jonathan? Um, I, I would not add that much to what Sue and, and Esther just said, just maybe to reemphasize that, well, at least for me, social reproduction theory is, is and what I like about it and how I think is uh, uh, heuristically important is how social reproduction theory has been able to uh, uh, bring in 
history and experience in theorizing into a model that is able to be modified and as Sue said to you know uh, be able to include other insights from other schools be able to adapt as well to capitalist transformations and transformations in the forms of oppression as well that go along with it that support it that contradict it so, so social reproduction theory appears to me when I do my work as extremely malleable and extremely attentive to grasping the actual transformations of the world. And I think on this, it's, it's, it's a plus for that theory that many theories tend to remain static or tend to fit, you know, with, with certain mm. periods. And I think social reproduction theory is, is extremely malleable in that sense. And I think that's, a, that's an immense and formidable strength to it because of it. So I can use it in my work, you know, working on uh, data economy now. And, and it's helpful. And it's, it's really helpful to understand many transformations because it's based on experience as well and history. And I think I, I remember reading uh, someone who I think and I know has been an inspiration to many social reproduction theory uh, writers, Imani Banerjee, who was uh, talking about capitalist totality and, and ways to understand capitalist totality as uh, rooted in human experience experience as well. So I think that's a very interesting and very important insight that social reproduction theory brings forth. Okay, thanks very much. Three very interesting papers and three very interesting articulations of social reproduction theory. Uh, thanks very much to the speakers for a good session. I hope you as an audience have enjoyed it. If I can just make a few announcements before we close. Uh, the programme continues tonight with a discussion of the Deutsche Lecture. For those of you who want to uh, listen to the Deutsche discussion, which we're broadcasting live in a short while, it might be worth checking out the lecture first. Uh, tomorrow we have three sessions on the pandemic, and on Sunday we have sessions on historicising capitalism, 21st century socialism and identity. I'd remind you, currently on the website, we have 30 articles from the 29-volume history of the journal, and they are available uh, free open access. Uh, we also have good discounts on both the journal and the book series. In the book series, you can, you can have a look at Brill for the hardbacks and the substantial amounts, and you can look at Haymarket for the paperbacks. And of course, we encourage you to look at Haymarket's perhaps more accessibly. Finally, uh, it's not often known, but the HM uh, editorial board all live together in a small hut. <laughs> uh, and we eat gruel because we have no money. So please, can you donate? <laughs> Obviously, what I'm saying is we put on these events for free. HM's Editorial Collective works on these uh, without charging fees. Uh, if you can donate, if it's possible, please do so on the website. Uh, thank you very much. Okay, thanks, and I hope to see some of you back for the Deutsche Discussion later this evening. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode... Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.